Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, and uh, reading at verse uh, 28. Matthew chapter 8 and reading at verse 28. We read, and when he came to the other side, uh, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass their way. As they write their accounts of uh, Jesus' life and ministry, the Gospel writers Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are doing more than providing us with a simple biography of the life of Jesus. These men are seeking to persuade all who read their accounts that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Saviour of the world. And having become persuaded of this, our only a response ought to be one of receiving him and resting on him by faith. I want to say to you today, friends, as we study Matthew's Gospel, but indeed as we study any of the Gospels, don't ever just think, well, this is just an academic exercise. No. These men are trying to persuade us, and we know that the Holy Spirit can work in this way to persuade These men are seeking to persuade us that Jesus is the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, and that we must receive him by faith. And in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Matthew presents his case for Christ in the most compelling way possible. Here we see Jesus' authority over sickness, Matthew 8, verses 1 to 17. Then his authority over uh, storms, Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27. Then his authority over Satan, Matthew 8, verses 38, 28 to 34. And finally, his authority over sin, chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. Today we're focusing on his sovereign authority over Satan, and we're looking at this under two headings, the encounter and then the exorcism. The encounter and the exorcism. First you have the encounter. Look at verses 28 and 29. Here Matthew focuses on Jesus' encounter with two demon-possessed men. At the beginning of verse 28, we see the country where Jesus travels to. In verse 18, we hear Jesus giving a command. He had been speaking to this crowd on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he had commanded them to cross over to the other side of the lake. Now, that was very much a test. Those with a general passing interest in Jesus would remain where they were, but those with a genuine personal interest in Jesus would cross over in order to be with him on the other side of the lake. And then in verses 23 to 27, we saw the crossing. The followers, the disciples of Jesus, find themselves in a tempest on the lake. It's a sudden storm. It happens without any warning. Not only is it a sudden storm, it's a severe storm. It's, it's described as being an earthquake on the lake. And the disciples find themselves crying out to Jesus, we are, we are perishing. They thought that their lives were in danger. And Jesus rebukes the wind and rebukes the waves so that the tempest gives way to tranquility. It's an incredible scene that leaves those in the boat marveling and murmuring among themselves, What sort of man is this, that even wind and sea obey him? And having made the crossing, Jesus and his disciples now come to the country of the Gadarenes. Look at verse 28. Uh, This was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It was uh, a predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish region. The main city was Gadara that was about five miles from the shore. 
In the second half of verse 28, we see the confrontation. Matthew introduces us to these two demon-possessed men. Now, we've already seen Jesus driving out evil spirits and demons back in verse 16. And here we have a particular instance of two men who were possessed and oppressed, infiltrated and afflicted by demons. Matthew goes on to tell us that these demon-possessed men came out of the tombs. It's an appropriate place for them to be. These tombs, these places of death and decay. But a tomb is also an unclean place. Again, an appropriate place for a demon to take up residence. And Matthew tells us that these demon-possessed men who came out of the tombs were fierce. In fact, they were so fierce that, uh, that uh, no one could pass by that way. They, they were a danger to society. These demons are exercising a reign of terror in the lives of these men. And these men are exercising a reign of terror in the country that Jesus and his disciples have come to. And in verse 29, we hear the cry. Upon seeing Jesus, the men cry out. As we'll soon see, it's not so much the men themselves who are crying. The men are functioning very much as mouthpieces for evil, mouthpieces for these demons. We can imagine how unsettling that would be for the disciples. Can you imagine? They're just recovering from a storm at sea, a storm where their lives were in danger, and now they find themselves meeting these two very fierce demon-possessed men. And Matthew proceeds to record the content of the demonic cry. They begin by saying, what have you to do with us? Literally, what is there between us and you? Go away. Leave us alone. We've got nothing in common. They continue by saying, O Son of God. Now that is interesting. Up until this point, the crowds in Matthew's Gospel have called Jesus teacher. Not only that, the disciples have called Jesus Lord. The demons are the first to call him Son of God. They recognize that Jesus has a unique and unparalleled relationship with the living God. And they go on and they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons know that God has appointed a time for judging the devil and all his demons. They know that the burning wrath of God, the lake of fire, the everlasting hell has been prepared for Satan and his fallen angels. They know that and they're wondering why the Son of God has now appeared on this particular day. Why the Son of God has come into confrontation with them. They want to know, has he come to inflict that final judgment? Has he come to inflict that final reckoning? Has he come to inflict the day of vengeance on them? What have you to come to do there, saying to Jesus? Have you come to torment us ahead of the time? Now, friends, as we consider these verses, they're challenging us to be aware of demonic dominion. That's the first thing they're doing. They're challenging us to be aware of demonic dominion. That is what this passage is showing us. Matthew is showing us a real event that occurred in the life of Jesus. There he is. Across the lake of Galilee, he's five miles from the city of Gadara, and on this particular day, at this particular place, Jesus and his disciples came into contact with two men who were possessed and oppressed, infiltrated and afflicted by demons. Friends, this is so important for us to recognize. The word of God is clear that this world is inhabited by spiritual beings. 
dark powers, demonic forces. The devil is real. Demonic spirits are real. And they can be at work in the lives of particular individuals, but also whole nations. I love the, I shouldn't say I love, but I do find it fascinating, the, the history of Adolf Hitler in the Third Reich. It's, it's one of my obsessions. I find it fascinating. Because the more you study it, the more you read about it, the more you realize just how demonic it really was. Some historians try to claim that the Nazi party were driven by economics. But economics doesn't drive a person or a group to murder six million people because of their beliefs, because of their race. They were driven by evil. The devil and his demonic forces. Today we need to recognize that the devil is real. Demonic spirits are real. And they wield an incredible amount of influence in many places and many spaces. A lot of people have been commenting this past week on how unhinged Putin has become in recent years. Does it make you wonder? Does it make you wonder? But as we consider these verses, they're also challenging us to be aware, not simply of demonic dominion, but also demonic doctrine. That is what this passage is showing us. These demons are speaking through these two men, and as they speak, they show that they know who Jesus is. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that he has come to execute divine judgment on on his enemies. But despite their knowledge of this, these demons continue to live their lives in open opposition, reckless rebellion against Jesus. And friends, that is so important for us to recognize. Jesus' brother James would write, Even demons believe in God and they shudder. The New Testament makes it clear that it's not enough to believe in the existence of Jesus. It is not enough, friends, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's not enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who will exercise authority and eventually destroy the devil and all his demons. The demons believe all these things. They hold all these things to be true. Instead, friends, we must bow the knee to Jesus. We must surrender our lives into the hands of Jesus. We must submit ourselves to the sovereignty, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus. That is something that the devil and his demons, with all their knowledge of Jesus, cannot and will not do. They know all the doctrine. They can quote the Heidelberg Catechism. They can quote the Westminster Confession of Faith. They know the English Standard Version of the Bible off by heart. They know the Gallic Version of the Bible off by heart. They know all these things. But that doctrine brings them no delight. It results in no transformation, only terror. Friends, it is not enough to know about Jesus. We must know Jesus. It is not enough to know that he is the Son of God. We must bow to him as the Son of God. But we move from the encounter to the exorcism. Look at verses 30 to 34. 
Matthew now focuses on Jesus' exorcism of these demons. In verses 32-32, we hear the requests of the demons. We can begin by noting the request in verses 30 and 31. Matthew draws our attention to this herd of pigs in verse 30. Uh, The presence of these pigs highlights that this is a non-Jewish region, since Jews regarded uh, pigs as being unclean, and the pigs are described here as being a large herd. Uh, That indicates that they are being kept for financial profit. They're not roaming wild, they're not roaming free, they are a herd that are being kept for the welfare of the city of Dadara. And Matthew moves from the pigs to the plea in verse 31. The demons beg Jesus. They know that they can't give him orders. They know that they cannot give him commands. They know that they can only beg. And so they beg Jesus to allow them to be sent into the herd of pigs. Again, that's quite an appropriate place for unclean demons to want to take up residence in in an unclean herd of pigs. And having heard the requests of the demons, we move to the response of Jesus. Look at verse 32. Jesus speaks, and he speaks for the first and only time in this narrative. And the only word that he says is go. He doesn't enter into any conversation with the demons. He doesn't engage in the the long, prolonged process of trying to exorcise demons like the exorcists of his day tried to do. You would hear them going through many elaborate rituals to try and drive out demons. There's none of that with Jesus. All he needs to do is speak a sovereign word, a word of power, a word of authority, the word go. And having been given the word, the demons come out of the men and they enter the pigs. And the pigs rush down the steep bank into the sea where they drown. Now there's two interesting features to note here. The fact that the demons come out of the men, enter the pigs, the pigs take off running down the steep bank into the sea where they drown, is visible proof that the demons have left these two men. The men are no longer inhabited by demons. The demons have left them and the demons have visibly gone into these pigs. But at the same time, we can see just how malevolent the devil and his demons really are. As they create a financial crisis for the city of Dadara, they destroy the livelihoods of so many people. People say, why on earth did the pigs rush off into the sea? Why did the demons want the pigs to drown? Well, they want to create mayhem for Gadara. Because they know if there's mayhem in Gadara, the focus will be off Jesus. Then in verses 33 to 34, we move from the request of the demons to the request of the Gadarenes. A report goes out. Look at verse 33. Matthew draws our attention to the herdsmen who were looking after the pigs. And they flee and they go and they tell the inhabitants of Dadara everything. And as they tell them everything, they don't simply relay the fact that there has been this economic catastrophe as all these pigs have been lost. No, did you see the way that Matthew highlights that they told the people of Gadara about what had happened to the demon-possessed men? They don't just go running saying, look what's happened to the pigs, look at the catastrophe. No, they go to the people and they say, look what happened to these demon-possessed men. And after the report has gone out, we see the response. Look at verse 34. The people of Dadara now arrive on the scene. All the city, the men, the women, the children. Matthew's emphasizing all the city came out to meet Jesus. 
And it's interesting that Matthew's focus now is no longer on the two demon-possessed men. They simply fade into the background. The focus is on Jesus. That is who the men of Gadara have come out to meet. And upon arriving, they present their appeal to Jesus. In verse 30, we saw the demons begging Jesus to let them go into the pigs. Now in verse 34, we see the people of Gadara begging Jesus to leave their region. It's interesting, isn't it, to note that they're willing to tolerate the presence of Satan and his demons in their locality. But they're not willing to tolerate the Son of God being in their midst. And they tell him to go. And they tell him to go now. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that strike you as so bizarre? That, that here are these people and they've got these demons living not far from their city and they're scared to go past the way in case they meet these demon-possessed men. But, but, but they've learned to live with them. But they're not willing to live with Jesus. So they say, go. Please go. We're begging you to go. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been confronted with the power of Jesus over the devil and all his demonic forces. That is what this passage is showing us. Here we see two demon-possessed men who are so fearsome that no one is able to pass along the way. And Jesus commands the demons to go with just one word, and instantly they're gone. The devil and his demons may have dominion, but Jesus has greater dominion. And friends, that is so important for us to remember, isn't it? The central narrative in scripture is Christ's conflict with the devil and his powers. And not only his conflict with the devil and his powers, but his conquest over the devil and his powers. It begins in Genesis 3 with the promise of the one who will crush the head of the serpent. It ends in Revelation 20, where you've got the devil and his forces being defeated by Christ. And what happens to them? They are thrown into a lake, not the lake of Galilee, but the lake of fire. And that should be such an encouragement to us today. Perhaps you've come here today and the past week has been incredibly difficult for you. Perhaps it was a real struggle for you coming out to church today. Perhaps you felt the devil has been beating you, besetting you, buffeting you, bruising you, leaving you close to breaking point over the last six or seven days. I think that might be the case for many people in this room. Why? Because I often think that after a communion season, the devil has a field day. The devil has a field day after a communion. And maybe you feel like he's had a field day with you this past week. Or perhaps you're here and you're anxious about what the days ahead are going to bring. The devil and his forces seem to wield so much power, so much influence. You see our governments passing laws and legislation that are pushing and promoting an antichrist agenda. You see the media constantly trying to indoctrinate us to embrace what God's word condemns and to shun what God's word commands. You, you see the situation in Russia and Eastern Europe and you're asking yourself, where is it all going to end? And this passage is telling you, it's telling me that Christ has control. Christ has authority. Christ has power over the devil and all his forces. He will have the last word on the devil. 
And his last word will be simple but sovereign, clear and concise. Go. Go. We don't need to despair, friends, when we are reminded of Jesus' power. We don't need to despair when we are reminded of Jesus' power. My best friend is a pastor in Moldova. And on Friday they welcomed eight refugees from the Ukraine into their home. I don't know how you do that. I I really don't know. I would love to say that I could, but would I, could I? I don't know. He and his wife and children are in one room, another family in another room, another family in another room. He's saying to me that he woke up at half four on Thursday morning hearing the bombing going off 20 miles away, 30 miles away. And he says he doesn't know what the future is going to hold for him and his congregation there in Moldova because Moldova, as you know, is a a non-NATO country and and if uh, Putin and his forces take Ukraine, will they then move on to Moldova? He doesn't know. He doesn't know if and when he'll get home. And he was saying to me that over the last few months he's been preaching through the book of Revelation. And he's been preaching it to his congregation, but even more to himself, reminding himself that Christ has the final victory. Christ has all the power, and the devil will not have the last word. Now, I don't know what you're thinking today. I don't know what you're facing today. But I want you to be reminded that Christ has the final say. And he will always have the final say. He has all the power. But these verses also leave us with a challenge about our own priorities. That's what we see in this passage. It's such a disappointing conclusion to this tremendous narrative as we read about the gatherings arriving and they're appealing to Jesus to, to leave their region. They're perturbed and they're disturbed by, by what Jesus has done. They're, they're angry at their financial loss. The losses that they've incurred through the drowning of all their pigs. And they now want Jesus to go. They want Jesus to leave them. They prefer, we might say it bluntly, they prefer their swine to the Saviour. And friends, this is so important for us to take on board today. This morning we've been considering demonic oppression and possession. But there is another form of satanic enslavement that is far more sinister, that is far more subtle than the kind that leaves a man or a woman living in a tomb. Listen to these words from Ligon Duncan. There are many in our own time who allow their desires to come between themselves and Christ, and they would rather have their fulfillment now than walk with him in this life. You see, the devil's weapons is the world. The way he enslaves us is that he sets our hearts and our desires on the temporal till we love it so much that there is no room for the eternal and that which is central is pushed to the peripheral. God no longer is at the centre of our experience. He is is pushed way to the outside. He may be the icing on the cake. He may be ignored entirely, but he is not the centre of our experience. The warning is for us. Will we love the sovereign Christ more than anything in this world? Or will we die with all our trinkets? Maybe you're here and you can see the ways that you've been pushing Jesus away. Maybe you're here and you're seeing the ways that you've been asking Jesus to leave you. 
you might be a professing Christian. You might not be a professing Christian. But this passage is challenging you, it's convicting you, it's showing you that you have been treating the Son of God in the same way that the people of Gadara treated him. Your behaviour is really no different. And in the very next verse that we're going to study next week, God willing, we see that Jesus responded to the appeal of the Gadarenes by getting into the boat and crossing to the other side of the lake. He left them. He gave them exactly what they wanted. My friend, let me say this as clearly and emphatically as I possibly can. Let me say it to those of you who are younger, those of you who are teenagers, but let me also say it to those of you who are older. Don't let the same be true of you. If the Lord has interrupted your life, if the Lord has challenged you to do business with him, if the Lord has revealed something of his person and his power to you, then please don't push him away. Please don't ask him to leave. Because it is more than possible that he will. This is very, very solemn, friends. If you keep asking Jesus to leave, there may come a time when he says to you, Thy will be done. Very solemn. And that's why this passage is so urgent for each and every one of us today. Let's pray.